after we each introduce some things, we have a few questions that have been written down, but we'd be happy to field any questions that are brought up or um, as, the, as the time, as we get past those questions to field any questions that any of you want to ask. Um, I don't know if we have a floating microphone that people can ask questions to or not, but if not, uh, they can come up and yell at us those questions. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and start by introducing myself. Um, my name's Michael Stark, and I've been a faculty at Brigham Young University since 2001. Um, I'm, a, I'm in the Department of Physiology and Developmental Biology, and my background and training is primarily in cell and developmental biology. Um, I, I will say this, an important part of my training was after I left Brigham Young University with a bachelor's degree in zoology, I had the privilege to go and, um, and do, uh, do some research and be mentored by Trent Stevens, who is at the end of our panel here up at Idaho State University. And um, Trent was really influential in my life in helping me be able to think about science the right way and ask interesting uh, and important questions. Um, so uh, after I studied with him for a couple of years, I received my PhD from UC Irvine spent some time at Caltech, and my main focus was studying the early development of the nervous system. Um, along the way, I've really focused my scientific interest in understanding what we call cell-fate determination, or how different molecular and genetic programs assemble themselves in cells to push that cell toward a certain fate or a certain decision, such as becoming a neuron or becoming a muscle cell. And a lot of my focus has been on understanding early nervous system development and how cells make those fate choices. I've dabbled in some stem cell biology to ask questions about the molecular programs that help uh, push cells toward uh, certain fates as we study them as stem cells. And so um, it's, it's really been a fruitful and exciting career and experience for me. I especially want to emphasize that, that as I've gone through my career, I frequently, probably on a daily basis, reflect back to the important things of my life, such as family and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and how I can be a better uh, follower of Christ. Now, applying that to science is a little bit difficult, and as many of these panelists, or I would say any of them, would attest, uh, we've all gone through different stages in our level of understanding of biology, biological principles, how they apply to us, and how we can um, I guess, uh, bring knowledge that we obtain through science uh, and make it jive with what, what we believe spiritually and what we believe in the church. <clears throat> there are a couple of important experiences in my life that have really gone a long way toward this process. Uh, I remember some of the first times that I was challenged as a, as a young teenager with the idea that there was a conflict between science and religion in the age, uh, in the age of the earth. And uh, I was asked as part of a physics class to debate my classmates, and each of us drew straws as to whether we would be on the side of the debate of, of a scientifically aged earth, millions or billions of years old, versus uh, an earth the age described uh, in scripture and interpreted by many to be just a few thousand years old. And uh, that, was, that was the first time that I had the opportunity to really open for myself 
the opportunity to ask and wonder about truth and how we obtain truth. And um, one thing that I've been privileged to, um, I guess a gift that I've been privileged to obtain, is to know that the knowledge that we obtain in this earth, all knowledge that we obtain in this earth comes from our Heavenly Father. He reveals it to righteous and unrighteous people alike through scientific discovery or investigation or through revelation, however he sees fit to do that. And uh, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that there have been a few things that no one else knew that I was able to discover and, uh, and be a part of that process. Uh, that really inspires me and directs me to understand um, his divine nature. It also gives me an opportunity to teach the students at BYU and others that I interact with uh, the great things that we can do on this earth and the great opportunities that we have to expand our mind and to prayerfully understand and consider the truths and knowledge that we can obtain directly through personal revelation and also through hard work and research and scientific discovery. And um, so those are the basic principles that, that govern my employment, my career, my scientific inquisitiveness, and also the way that I follow um, what I believe to be uh, the right way to live and follow the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, so as we, as we proceed today, um, some of the questions that may come may involve things that are my expertise, such as stem cell biology or uh, early embryonic development or gene expression and how that governs cell fate choices and developmental models and so forth. And uh, these other panelists may introduce a little bit about their ex expertise so that we can address your questions appropriately. Thank you. <clears throat> I'm Emily Bates, is this on? Um, I'm Emily Bates, and I, um, I guess I started my career, or maybe my education in science, and my, my first conflict between um, scientific inquiry and, um, and my religion, I guess, here in Provo, Utah. I was in high school, uh, ninth grade, and I started learning about evolution, and at the time, my um, Sunday school teacher had taught me that you could not believe in the gospel and also the gospel of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and also believe in evolution. And at the time, I remember learning in school about, about evolution and really thinking that it made a lot of sense and there was a lot of evidence for it. So I started praying every day for a a response or a way to see what was wrong with this theory so that I could you know, go on with having my faith in my, in my church. And, um, and it was around, you know, it was a long time when I was praying for this. And, and one time I woke up in the middle of the night and I had um, this strong impression that I should read my scriptures, read Genesis and read Abraham. And I did that. And I had this um, overwhelming feeling that there and, and recognition that there was no conflict, that um, I could see the order of evolution described in the scriptures. And um, that was really my first answer to prayer that I had received and became both the, my testimony of God and my testimony of science at the same time. And um, so that was my first kind of um, experience with getting my own answer to prayer and also getting my own um, 
learning experience of something that um, that maybe was challenging ch- challenging for me. Um, and then I I um, decided to go into science because of my patriarchal blessing. It was a very explicit um, blessing, and and so I um, I followed that. And so I followed that to the University of Utah, where I started working in a lab before my freshman year. Um, published a paper as an undergraduate uh, studying Drosophila genetics. This is fruit flies and how fruit flies develop. And then I went on to Harvard Medical School, where I did my PhD studying the molecular mechanism and looking for drug targets for Huntington's disease, which is a genetic neurological disorder. Um, From there, I went to University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, um, so UCSF in San Francisco. And there I studied the genetics of migraine. Um, They had a short piece about our research on NPR that they interviewed me just about in May, I think. Um, So I, um, and then now, and then I worked at the university, uh, the university here, Brigham Young University, for four and a half years, um, teaching undergraduates and continuing my research on migraines and also on um, the molecular mechanisms of birth defects to try and find preventions and, and cures. Um, and teaching the wonderful students there, whom I miss now because I have now taken a position at the University of Colorado Denver School of Medicine um, to kind of push my research forward a little bit. Um, and now I'm continuing to study syndromes of birth defects and um, genetic causes of a bunch of different disorders. Um, I love science and I also love faith and I um, don't see a conflict between them. I'm R. Paul Evans. Uh, Several years ago, I was walking along 8th Avenue in New York City uh, while visiting my daughter and son-in-law and walked past uh, the Cathedral of uh, St. Paul the Apostle that's just uh, a few blocks away from the Lincoln Center. And they had an announcement for a uh, book discussion that evening on early Christianity. I thought, well, I'm going to go to that. That looks really interesting. And uh, in this, uh, the discussion was about a book. The author was there and uh, outlining the thoughts of the early fathers uh, about Christianity in various uh, theological discussions. And uh, at the end, there was a question-answer period. And uh, the question came up, and that was, what about the Mormons and their claim on certain ideas in early Christianity. And the author of the book, who's a professor at a Midwestern school, I thought for a second and he said, there are no new heresies. And uh, he went on to explain that all the ideas that we bring forward about what Christianity was early were the same sorts of ideas that were present in some of the early fathers and were later pruned off uh, as uh, as Christianity reached a uh, central theological sort of approach. So I think the same way when I see ideas of the new atheism, and uh, I think, well, it's not new, it's the same sorts of ideas, maybe the volume is a little larger, maybe the platform is uh, a little bit more open, but uh, the ideas are the same. 
And I also think about the same issues of science versus religion and uh, reflect upon Socrates and his ideas about how to go forth in life and the conflict he had with the surrounding uh, culture at the time. And I really find no difference. It, we, we're always conflicted with these ideas of what is truth and what is not, what can direct a life and what can't. As, uh, as a scientist, I uh, started as an undergraduate at BYU, went on to uh, graduate school at uh, Medical College of Virginia. It's in Richmond. That's home for me, Washington, D.C. area. And uh, um, studied bacterial resistance in uh, bacteria and the bacteria that cause tooth decay, hoping to make a uh, vaccine against tooth decay. It didn't work. The, uh, the antibodies against the bacteria cause tooth decay also work very effectively against heart muscle. So um, that didn't turn out to be a good thing. So, uh, so in, in science, you have some really great ideas, and not all of them always result in the best outcomes. But it was an interesting avenue to explore. From there, I went to Purdue University as a postdoctoral fellow and uh, worked on the genes uh, responsible for seed protein and protein uh, type and content in uh, soybean seeds and manipulating those and changing those and reintroducing um, uh, a more complete protein source, if you will, uh, or amino acid source into uh, soybeans. And then since being at BYU in 1987, been involved in looking at the DNA sequences of populations and how they change over time and what it is that identifies individuals, populations, how can those be reflected in geological events, in transmission events, and, uh, and mutation over time. And that's involved a lot of uh, fish and uh, cutthroat trout and all sorts of aquatic insects and snakes and everything. And I also go over to Egypt uh, in a part of the uh, BYU Egypt excavation where we've been looking at the DNA sequences and the biology of people who were 2,000 years ago. The idea being if we could look at what a human population looked at, looked like 2,000 years ago, or now with Neanderthals, you know, 50 and 60,000 years ago, what can we say about the human condition today? So that's really where I've come from. But my life is hypothesis-driven. I perform experiments that involve techniques like polymerase chain reaction. I have some ideas on how that works, and I perform the experiment with the idea I'll have a particular outcome. Experiment doesn't always work, and so you do it again. And you try to figure out what was wrong. What is your idea about this process that has somehow gone wrong? I have hypotheses about southern blot. I have hypotheses about DNA sequencing. And I, acting on those ideas, uh, perform those uh, experiments. And the data is usually as expected, but there's always issues where it isn't. But it doesn't stop me from trying again because there's enough evidence from what I've seen from authorities and from what I personally have experienced that tell me it, something I need to change in order to make it work. I have the same idea about faith and prayer. Sometimes I have an idea of what I think faith is and what I think prayer is and what I think my relationship with my Savior is. I test the hypothesis, I act a particular way, and it doesn't always turn out the way that I thought it was going to be. 
That doesn't change the reality of the presence of my Savior and my Heavenly Father. What it means is my understanding of how they function and what my relationship with is needs to change. And I need to figure out what that, what is the missing component in that. So hypotheses, moving forward in that direction is how I operate on a scientific basis. It's how I live my everyday basis. I think this is the right way of working. Oh, that didn't work. I guess I'll have to change. One of my favorite cartoons I have posted outside my office shows a machine. And somebody walks up to the machine and pushes the button, and they get zapped by lightning. And they're charred, standing there smoldering. And then the cartoon splits and says, ordinary people. And it says, I'm not going to do that again. And then the other panel says, the scientist. And the caption says, I wonder if that's reproducible. <laughs> <laughs> You just uh, probably heard enough from me, but I'll give you a little bit more introduction. Um, I'm Steve Peck. Uh, I'm in the biology department at uh, Brigham Young University. And how I got there is kind of an interesting journey of faith and discovery. I, uh, I was in the army serving in Germany, and we go on these long maneuvers for uh, several weeks at a time. And uh, I, I drove an ammo carrier, which meant that I had to park away from everybody, and it was really boring. And I, I, I was pondering a lot about uh, what to do with my life, because driving an ammo carrier didn't really seem like a long-term solution. Uh, no offense to ammo carrier drivers in the audience, but um, I, I, I wanted something different. And so I, I used that time as kind of a uh, in-the-wilderness uh, faith journey to try to figure out what I wanted to do. And I had a very clear revelation to become a teacher. And from that time on, that was uh, my goal. I, uh, I, I got out of the Army, went on a mission to Arkansas. Um, I never really learned the language, but I, I could get by. I... Uh, came to BYU and I was very, I, I, I was, I've always been interested in evolution, whether I hated it or I loved it. Uh, and, and when I got to BYU, I had uh, come off of reading things like Joseph Fielding Smith's Man, Origin is Destiny, which is, you know, says very clearly this is of the devil. And I went upstairs to the books and I opened the evolution book and I was surprised to see it was an ordinary evolution book. I thought, this looks like they like it here. This isn't, I, I expected the, the evolution book at BYU to, to say, this is obviously false and flawed. And, and, and so I was really curious about it. And, and I, I'm a very curious person, which means that I decided to sort of major in, in biology. Uh, and that lasted for about a year and a half until I, uh, I, I had a friend graduate ahead of me. One of my high school friends graduated in, in biology, and, and uh, he went back to Moab to work in the mines with his degree, and I thought, well, maybe I'll do something a little more. So I majored in statistics, and that launched me into um, uh, biology from a computational perspective. And I, I did my doctorate at uh, NC State in biomathematics, which is... Um, it's, it's, it's just mathematics applied to biology. And, um, and, 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 and finally came, came to BYU. And the interesting thing at BYU for me 
how I moved from being someone who literally on my mission, I remember an experience where I was telling somebody they couldn't be baptized until they gave up their belief in evolution. I mean, this is how clear it was in my mind that this was not something that should be done. And I came to BYU and I was taking classes and presented with the data. Also, uh, speaking of Carl Sagan, who we've applauded today, I was watching Cosmos. I was watching David Ottenborough's show, Life on Earth. And I was completely overwhelmed with the beauty and evidence of evolution. Luckily for me at BYU, I had teachers who were both faithful members of the church and taught evolution. And I, I also had four friends at other university that I'd graduated from high school with. They were presented with the case of evolution and they honestly believed like I did that um, uh, there was no place for both in, in the church. And so for me, this became a, a, a sort of um, crusade to, 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 to help people who were struggling with their faith based on, on evolution uh, to, to come to terms with it, to recognize that you don't have to give up one to, to hold to the other. And for me, this has been a, a, an amazing and fun journey. I, if I have one attribute, it's immense curiosity. And I, I, I don't have all the answers, but I love probing things, and it gets me in trouble more often than not, but um, so be it. Um, and, and, and so that's why I think things like this are so important. I think it's so important that we get together and discuss our faith and our science and how they work together. And, and, and there are tensions. I admit that. There are places that I don't have answers to how it works or why it works. But... For me, that I can imagine some solution suggests suggest to me that there are solutions and that although I might not have hit upon the right one or that there's still work to be done, that, that I can um, uh, still hold to the hope that these tensions that I see will get worked out eventually. And, uh, and, and for me, I, I just I, I love this. I have fun. I, lo I, you know, I love science. I love my faith, and I'm glad that I can argue in places like this that they fit together well. My name is Trent Stevens. Uh, I'm Emeritus Professor of Anatomy and Embryology at Idaho State University. Um, I grew up in southern Idaho uh, on a dairy farm. That's why I'm here. Um, rather be anywhere than a dairy farm. <laughs> um, how many of you are familiar with Malta, Idaho? Oh, wow, a lot of you have been at the Mecca. Um, population 200, I grew up in a suburb. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I've always had a, a two thoughts in mind. One is a, an enormous curiosity, which I guess this panel seems to have in common, uh, and the other is uh, a belief that all truth is compatible. And so I've never had any problem seeking for truth and knowledge no matter where it lies. Um, when I was uh, in the eighth grade, when I finished the eighth grade in Malta, as you can imagine, there's only a grade school and a high school, there's not enough people for a middle school. 
Um, and so when I graduated from the eighth grade, I uh, asked for a graduation present of a book entitled Chromosome Numbers in Animals. Uh, and I went through the book cover to cover. It is, there's no text in the book. There's no narrative. It is about a 300-page book of just tables. Um, and so I decided that this was the uh, key to disproving evolution, which everyone else had some way missed out on. And I decided that if there's this progression of evolution from less, um, uh, less specialized uh, and less highly developed organisms to more specialized and more highly developed organisms, that that transition should be reflected in the chromosome numbers of animals. And so I basically plotted all of these tables on this big chart that I created on a poster board, as I recall. And basically the chart just goes up and down. There's no, there's no pattern to the chromosome numbers between closely related animals. And I thought, aha, finally someone has come up with a definitive uh, argument against evolution, which uh, I, I, with Steve, I didn't go quite as far as my mission uh, carrying that notion, but I was convinced that evolution was incorrect, um, that the entire uh, hominid fossil record could be fit into a shoebox in the mid-1960s, and half of the fossils were fakes at that time. You look at something like the Piltdown Man, you know, it was at this time was being shown to be a fake, and I thought, well, you know, that stands to reason. Uh, so when I arrived at BYU, uh, my freshman year as an undergraduate, I declared my major as biochemistry and my minor as art. And, and I got here at BYU and found out that I was a chemistry major, and art was nowhere on the curriculum. Uh, there was no biochemistry undergraduate program at BYU, at BYU in 1966 when I arrived here. Uh, and um, so I decided I was going to launch into disproving evolution very quickly. And so my uh, sp in the spring semester of my freshman year, when you're supposed to, in, you know, in the fall semester, you write those little short essays. And then in the spring semester, in your freshman writing course, you, you write a thesis. And so I decided, hey, you know, what better time to disprove evolution than in my freshman year at, at BYU? So I started writing this thesis of the chromosome uh, barrier to evolution. And so I went to the library and started doing research and immediately came across Carson's work with Hawaiian Drosophila in which he demonstrated very elegantly that you could see these chromosome inversions that mapped the, the exact uh, evolutionary pattern of Drosophila in the Hawaiian Islands. And I thought, wow, have I been wrong? And I realized that there was this enormous amount of evidence, uh, and the more I looked, the more I found from, at that time, the uh, chromosome patterning, uh, molecular biology, which is what I really wanted to go into, didn't even have a name yet. Uh, and the more I learned, the more I found that there is an enormous 
body of scientific evidence to support evolution. Um, I, ended, I went on a mission for two years to Michigan and Indiana, uh, and then came back. Um, I didn't like chemistry. I, that was the bio part that I liked, and so while I was working on construction the summer after I came back from a mission, I heard on the radio that the first gene had been isolated from E. coli. And I realized that that being a bacterium, I came back and changed my major to microbiology from chemistry. Uh, and spent most of my time in the zoology department, and particularly in Fanny Farkle's Fantastic Fly Factory. Any of you who are familiar with Dwayne Jeffrey, he was a great influence on my life uh, as an undergraduate. And so when I finished, I had enough zoology credits that I graduated with, with a double major in microbiology and, and zoology. And in the process, became very interested in the whole idea of, of shape and how biological form occurs. And that came about the same time as as, 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 uh, um, as I was attending, uh, interestingly enough, in 1971, uh, I enrolled in the very first evolution course ever taught at, at BYU. Uh, in 1911, uh, Joseph uh, F. Smith stated, this is in the juvenile instructor, uh, there was a big controversy in 1911, and a lot of it was focused around B Brigham Young Academy at the time. And Joseph F. Smith stated, until we receive more light upon the subject of evolution, we deem it best to refrain from discussion of certain philosophical theories. Some of our teachers are anxious to explain how much the theory of evolution is true and what is false, but that only leaves their students in an unsettled frame of mind. And this is what I think is interesting. He didn't have a very high opinion of uh, Brigham Young Academy students. He said they are not old enough and learned enough to discriminate or put proper limitations on a theory which believe, we believe is more or less a fallacy. Evolution would best be left out of the discussions of our church schools. And it was left out for the next 60 years. The church itself has no philosophy about the modus operandi involved by the Lord in his creation of the world. He went on to say, it is much preferred that they, the institutions of learning, emphasize the industrial and practical side of education. In our church schools would, uh, if our church schools would confine their so-called course of study in biology, to that knowledge of the insect world, which would help us eradicate the pests that threaten the destruction of our crops and our fruit, such instruction would answer much better the aims of the church school than theories which deal with the origin of life. Uh, and, and I find it very interesting that he talks about insect pests, and the best way for us to really understand insect pests properly is to understand their evolution and their uh, resistance to pesticides. Uh, so for 60 years, uh, evolution was not taught in the church schools until 1971, when Dwayne Jeffrey and Clayton White come together taught a course in evolution, and I was one of the students in that, in that course. 
About the same time, I read a paper on, uh, or uh, I should go back and say that Duane, about the same time, um, um, gave a lecture on this very intriguing little marine plant called Acetabularia mediterranea. And there, there's one little tiny, there, it's a plant that's about this big, and it has one nucleus. It's a single-celled plant that has a nucleus big enough to see without using a microscope. It's incredible. One looks like a little umbrella, and the other one looks like a little mace. And one's called Acetabularia mediterranea, and the other one's called Acetabularia uh, uh, crenadia. And uh, I became so fascinated in the shape of this little plant that I decided that that's what I wanted to do for my career is understand biological form. I stayed on at BYU uh, for one year and got a master's degree with uh, Bob Sigmiller, uh, again in zoology, and then I went to the University of Pennsylvania to work with uh, Dr. James Leish, uh, looking at the issue of development of the limbs. And my research has been, uh, for many, many years, looking at the question of why are limbs located where they're located uh, on, the, uh, on the body? How does that form developmentally? Um, I also became fascinated at the same time with the question of how does thalidomide cause birth defects, uh, the mechanism of action of the drug. So I've had sort of these two parallel career paths. Uh, after, the university, after receiving a PhD at the University of Pennsylvania, I went to the University of Washington for a postdoc in pediatrics, uh, specifically interested in studying the range of human birth defects. And then uh, in 1981, was hired at Idaho State University to teach in the new dental school um, there, the dental program, um, uh, to teach anatomy and human developmental biology. And uh, re just retired from there two years ago. Um, <clears throat> while I was at ISU, um, uh, we had a student in the biology department there who was a, um, a theater major uh, by the name of Forrest Peterson. And he went to the department chairman and complained about the teaching of evolution in the zoology, uh, the biology labs. And so the department chairman, uh, Forrest was, a, was LDS, uh, and the department chairman sent him to me. And we spent about two and a half hours I spent two and a half hours explaining to him the beauties of, the, of evolution and the, the how it was not incompatible with our theology. And when we finished, this was about 20 years ago, he said, well, now that you've told me all this, what book can you advise me to read on this subject? And I said, there aren't any that have been written since about the early 1960s. And he said, well, why don't you write one? And I said, well, I've been thinking about it for a long time, and, and uh, about that time, another faculty member was LDS, joined, there is LDS joiner faculty by the name of Jeff Meldrum. And Jeff and I uh, then set out on this project uh, to write a book uh, entitled Evolution and Mormonism, which we published about 12 years ago. Um, I was on a, a Sunstone Symposium discussing this book um, right after it came out and um, was then asked, to participate in a panel on uh, the Book of Mormon and Native American origins. 
in, in the DNA evidence. And after we, but Jeff and I were both on that panel, and after we finished with that panel, we decided we need to write another book on uh, that topic of uh, DNA data and Native American origins, which we published a few years later entitled, Who are the Children of Lehi? Um, about the same time, I was asked by the Journal of, Mor of Mormon History to uh, review a book that was published by um, uh, Dwayne Anderson entitled Farewell to Eden. Uh, and in the introduction to his book, uh, he said that he had these, these questions. He has a master's degree in physics from BYU, and uh, lives in Arizona. And he had some questions that he went to his bishop about, and the bishop said, uh, don't worry about them. And that was not very satisfactory to, uh, to Duane. He went to his stake president with the same problem, and they said, don't worry about it. And it, it just, his experience just really killed me. I've been a bishop twice, and I recognized that he had a real issue. If he, if he had gone to his bishop with a financial problem, the church has formal professional help for that. If he had gone to his bishop with a psychological problem, the church has formal professional help for that. And in the handbook of instruction, it tells the bishop what to do. If a person goes to a bishop and has a problem of faith, there's nothing in the handbook telling the bishop what to do other than to tell the person, don't worry about it, and uh, it'll go away. Uh, and so um, I'm very, very interested and very anxious to, to help any way I can with particularly bishops who are faced with this dilemma and the young people who go to bishops who, are, who have this dilemma of a, a perceived problem between faith and any aspect of the church, including uh, science and evolution. All right. Th thank you all for introducing yourself and for making uh, some comments about your feelings about science and Mormonism. Um, uh, we've been given a handful of questions here that you've written, and uh, I think everyone has one or two in front of them. I'll start with one that came up in a prior um, session. Um, the, the question was stated a few different ways, and this one reminds me of it. It says, is cloning ethical, approved by God? At what point does cloning go too far? Um, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I get this from students at BYU on occasion. Um, in our scientific advancement, we have not, the, the collective we as biologists have been able to clone many organisms. And, um, and the question of ethics when it when it rests with animals maybe doesn't bother us as much, I think. But uh, most scientists, in fact, I've never met one that doesn't believe there are serious bio bioethical problems with the attempts at cloning humans, meaning cloning for reproduction, creating a new human through the process of cloning. And the process involves taking DNA from a somatic cell or a body cell from an adult organism and transplanting that DNA into uh, an egg that's been enucleated and then allowing it to develop. Uh, in theory, the technology to clone a human is available. Uh, I don't know of any reports that it's ever been done. Is that right? And um, 
so the, there's not an easy answer, but I will, uh, some, when students ask me this question, I challenge them to think about how they would define cloning and what, how would you define a clone in biological terms? And, uh, and uh, Emily just gave one of the co most common answers and probably a pretty right one. It's genetically identical to another individual. Do we have any examples of genetically identical, identical individuals in this world? And the answer is identical clones. Now, or identical twins, <laughs> identical twins, right? Or triplets. Or triplets, right? Or quadruplets. Yes. Anything else, Paul? <laughs> quadruplets, quintuplets. quintuplets. Um, so the idea that a genet that two identically genetic, uh, two identical Two genetically identical individuals would somehow one of them would somehow not be given the opportunity to, you know, is there a spirit in that individual, for example, doesn't seem to jive with what we understand about the gospel and about doctrine in that regard. So hopefully that answered that question at some level. Emily, we'll just go down the row. Questions you have. This question states, would you say that people well I'm going to re-answer it. So do chemicals in your brain determine how we act? Um, that versus God and agency. So um, this, I think, is mostly um, a question about, about what's going on in our brain and what's predetermined versus what we can choose. Um, and, and there's a little bit of both, I would say. So... Our genetic makeup does determine somewhat what is in our brain and what, um, you know, our, our susceptibility to depression, for example, our susceptibility to mental illness, um, maybe even your temper, um, things like that, uh, can be somewhat pre susceptible because of our genetic makeup. That said, we also have some um, ways that we can, we can modify what's in our brain, the chemicals in our brain. For instance, if you repeat a behavior many, many times, the, the connections between the neurons that make that process um, become strengthened and it becomes easier to do that, that um, act. For instance, when you practice a violin. So I play violin, and um, after a while, you don't really have to think about playing a note. It just happens. It just happens because, because those neural circuits are so, um, so practiced. Um, and so you can modify how your brain will behave by practicing and habit. Um, but because we're different genetically and, and we have a different tool that we're working with, and so we, we all have different struggles. Um, and those, um, and, and susceptibilities and, and different capacities as well, things that are easier for some per one person may be not as easy for another person. So we both have agency and we have some susceptibilities or predetermination. And so that's why I think there's the scripture that says that we're not allowed to judge anyone because we don't know what they're up against and they don't know what we're up against. And so I think that's why we have to leave that to God. So God gets to determine what he, kn he knows what I'm up against and he knows what you're up against. Um, 
and we can do the best that we can with what we have. Um, and we shouldn't feel guilty if we have a, a susceptibility to depression, for example, and we shouldn't feel guilty for treating that um, because we do have things that make us more susceptible to, to certain, certain things. But, um, but we can modify that. So we have agency within, within a sphere or within a, um, the best package that we've got, right? But, and, and that has to do actually with the second question. So maybe I'll just um, have those together. The second one was um, sec sexual, preference, sexual preference and agency. And this one's a little bit um, close to my heart because I've actually dated quite a few men who had um, same-sex attraction and um, didn't want it, didn't want that, um, that life. They wanted to have a family with a female wife and they wanted children. And, um, and so I saw their struggles um, really closely. And, and um, you know, one person in particular, particular I really love and loved. And, um, and I know that he didn't want that to be the case. Um, that said, he could choose what to do with that, that um, biological preference. Um, and, and that was the, that's the case for everyone. And that's the case for me too. You know, I'm, I'm single. I don't have a husband. So I can choose what to do with my, my preference, right? I, I prefer men and I can choose what behavior I do, but I can't really choose who, which sex I prefer. And that's been shown biologically as well. You can mutate one gene in a fruit fly and the male will, uh, the female will act like a male. Same thing in the other direction. You can do the same in mice. Um, and the, the part of the brain that was, is responsible for that has been identified. Um, and uh, there's also chemicals that are in pesticides that both frogs and, and mammals can um, be exposed to that make them more feminized if they're masculine, and that's not their choice. That's just something that biologically happens if they're exposed to that chemical that's actually really prevalent in um, the United States. It's outlawed in Europe. Um, so who knows why it is that there's um, same-sex attraction? I don't know, and I'm certainly not one that can judge um, what God will do with that. Um, but we're not allowed to judge anyone other than ourselves. So um, I leave it at that. Um, I think we all have agency with the package that we're given. Um, but all of us have a different package, so we can't judge each other. This question uh, has to do with uh, thoughts and how they would affect our gene expression. And uh, it's prefaced by the idea of epigenetics in this question. And so if you think about the genetic information that you have that determine how your cell behaves, and that is what information is available that uh, can direct cellular function and, and, uh, and outcomes, that would be our DNA sequence. And that's what's inherited. But you can modify the DNA. And that modification of the DNA can result in different types of expression that you would not expect to see just based on the DNA sequence. 
So that's what we refer to then as epigenetics, you know, something else. And so you can modify it, you can organize the DNA, have it packaged in a different way, and that can be inherited uh, from generation to generation. So the question is then, can thoughts affect genetic expression? So if I break it down, you would say, can my neuronal activity, and that is the activity of my brain and what's going on in there, can that change how the DNA is organized, how it's modified, the DNA sequence itself, um, what gets expressed, what, gets, what information gets played, if you will, on the, uh, if all the keys are there, what the score is of the piano piece that will be used. Um, there's no evidence one way or another on that question in terms of just brain thinking, neuronal activity, changing brain activity. Now the question comes, as, uh, as Emily suggested, how about acting on those thoughts and the behavioral, can you strengthen particular neuronal act, um, connections and result in, in easier to behave or to think in a particular way? That's one of the ones where you say, well, maybe, but uh, again, you know, the question becomes from at least a scientific approach, how to, how to measure that. And, uh, and I'm just not aware of anything that would uh, directly approach that. Um, so um, we, this susceptibility, if you will, to our genetics or even our epigenetics um, is not only things that we find to be you know, perhaps out of the ordinary, but they can also be changes or susceptibilities that would increase our likelihood of, of particular activities we think would be positive. Um, whether we see or not is due to our gen genetic expression. Whether we hear or not is due to our gene expression and the genes that we have. Whether we think a particular way or not also seems to be influenced by our genetic heritage and how those genes are put together and what other modifications that the environment can impose and what, uh, um, and, and, and in terms of what we eat, where we are, what we breathe, all those can have impacts. This one's right is directly to me. Dr. Peck, I have to respectfully disagree with your assessment of the Discovery Institute. How do you explain the complex specified information, digital code, contained in DNA and other epigenetic information in the cell if you are restricted to a purely methodological materialistic explanation? This is a really good question because it gets at a couple of things that, that I, I, I'd really like to point out. Um, one of the puzzles that we have in science is the origin of DNA. There's, there's some evidence that it, it started with RNA. Um, but we don't know. We don't know. And, there, and, and, and this is on top of another puzzle that's generating a, a lot of interest in philosophy of science. In fact, there's a new book that just came out this month on the arrow of complexity. It's in my bag even. Um, because this is, this, is a, this is a very interesting question. As we look at life on Earth, we see that it moves from very simple to much more complex. And this, this arrow of complexity is very clear. And people tended to ignore it. You find people like Stephen Jay Gould, who wrote a lot on, on evolution, who, who, who kind of him and Han say, well, there is, we don't know if there's an arrow of complexity. We can't, uh, it, maybe things were as complex uh, 
but but there is a really clear signal. Um, the the stromatolites that we see, blue blue green algae that looks like one of the very first uh, forms of life on Earth is is much simpler than the than a rutabaga, say. Um, and so, so this, this is this an interesting question because it, it gets it at the heart of one of the, the things about science is that we don't have answers to some things. We, we, we don't have clear information about what the chemical world was like when the earth was formed, um, how this process got started. Now, um, once we get, once we get natural selection going, uh, evolution can take off, and then it, it's easy to see where complexity comes from. One of the things about evolution is if you're in an open system, uh, like we have with sun pouring energy into the thing, there's no theoretical reason why you can't move from simplicity to complexity. Uh, any, 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 you know, when you come to your, uh, 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 you know, my kid's room and it's in a state of complete entropy, um, it takes energy to turn it into an ordered state. Uh, but energy can do that. Energy can do that directed, directed energy. So, so what we have here is we, 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 we don't know. And so the question is here is what's our response to this perplexity? Okay. The Discovery Institute, uh, has, has gone through a series of these kinds of, 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 of things where it says this is too irreducibly complex to have been evolved. And it's, it's just a claim, okay? So over to science, and science itself says, uh, no, here's the mechanism. I, I showed you the slide with, with uh, the, the uh, uh, bacterial uh, flagellum evolving, how that worked out step by step as an evolutionary process. And, and so they keep, they've, they've backed up now to the point where they're saying, ah, but you don't know how DNA got started. It's, it's, it's information rich. How did it happen? Um, so we can have two responses to this. One is to say, this is a scientific puzzle and we're going to work on it. Um, the other response is to say, and this has been the Discoveries Institute, aha, here's something you can't explain. Therefore, God must be the explanation. The trouble with that is, as it's been for them from, the, from their inception, is that when science is, explains, they have to back up. This is the god of the gaps. That it keeps retreating to a smaller and smaller region. So they've backed up now to saying, okay, we don't know how DNA got started. Aha, that's where God fits in. But the, the scientific response is, here's a puzzle. Let's see what we can do with it. Just this month, um, progress was made in looking at the way that 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 clays align certain uh, precursors to um, RNA molecules, and and you see this sort of arrangement that looks like it's got potential as an explanation for how life got started on Earth. So, the scientific approach is these kinds of puzzles. We don't, and, and, and this is every scientist know. There are things we don't know. Um, the, the the slide of Lord Calvin was just wonderful. You know, physics has got all the questions answered. Um, scientists, no scientist would make that claim now. Now we've got gobs and gobs of things to work on. But a claim that this is too complex or too um, buried, and we're going to insert God in there, becomes very very dangerous. 
because God keeps getting smaller and smaller as, as, as science progresses. My God doesn't get smaller and smaller as science progresses. My God stays the same size, whether science is making claims or not. So um, on a podcast once, I made the claim that, that how life got started on Earth, we, we may have, have it pegged in 10 years. I may have to reduce that to about five years if this clay stuff works out. But it's an empirical question. It's a question for science to explore. If at the end of time, when all the science is done, and we like Hoyle can say, there is no science explanation for how life got started on Earth, then we might turn to this. But we're a ways off from, from that ability. And so I, I, I would say that um, I think the Discovery Institute is setting itself up for failure, and it's setting up people for a failure of faith if they hang it on the, the, the god of the gaps. Um, that's my answer. Um, before I go to my question, I'd, I'd like to just comment uh, on what Steve was just talking about and then, and then Mike's uh, answer earlier, too. When you look at this issue of the structure of DNA and this idea of this clay template and et cetera that's being looked at right now uh, is, is somewhat related to my own research and papers that I've published on the mechanism of action of the drug thalidomide. Uh, Back in the late 1950s, a uh, company, a very small company in West Germany called Kimi Grunenthal, who was a cosmetic company, decided that they were going to make an antibiotic. And so they simply took uh, uh, an amino acid mixture and heated it up. And it turned out that two of the amino acids fused in such a way that they made a flat plate well, when you make a model, a molecular model of that flat plate, and you, and you slide and you take a model of DNA, that little flat plate of thalidomide can slide right in between the stacking uh, nucleotides of the DNA. And apparently, by, just by hydrogen bonding and sliding in there, it blocks transcription of certain genes with certain promoter sequences. And it turns out these certain genes are critical for blood vessel formation. So this very, so to go back and talk about the simplicity of DNA, it's a heck of a lot more simple than people think it is. We think that, well, it's got all this information, it must be very complex. It only has four letters in the alphabet. And one simple drug that was manufactured in the late 1950s can slide into there, block transcription of genes, which are responsible for making blood vessels and end up with people born with no limbs at all, no arms and no legs. That's pretty powerful, but it's very, very simple. And then going back to what Mike was talking about with, with uh, cloning and with twins, uh, I have spent my career studying birth defects and I love to go to the extreme in all cases. Uh, so he's talking about, he was talking about identical twins and triplets and quadruplets. How about twins that don't, that aren't completely twins? Like a person or people? The personality issue tells us that these are people with one body, two legs, two arms, and two heads. The two heads think differently. They act differently. 
just like, just like the differences between two completely separate uh, identical twins. And then you ask the question, how many spirits are we dealing with here? I have no answer to that question, but I think it's really interesting to think about. Um, here's a question that was specifically directed to me. In your book, Evolution and Mormonism, you make a case for something called bounded randomness. Could you explain how this is different from intelligent design? Uh, has, has the evidence changed in this? Uh, and that really follows up with, with this whole entire discussion of the Discovery Institute and, and intelligent design. And, uh, and I've actually been accused that the chapter that deals with bounded randomness in our, in our book is uh, just another way to talk about intelligent design. And let me say, uh, it is not uh, the same at all. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about how I got there to answer this question. Uh, when I started as a postdoc at the University of Washington, um, I discovered that it was like being in Camelot. Uh, for someone like me who was interested in human birth defects, this was Mecca. This was Camelot. Anybody that was anybody in the field of birth defects in the 1970s was at the University of Washington. Uh, and the luminaries were there. And, and every, every Friday, uh, we had a roundtable discussion uh, of various birth defects, and it was just fabulous. Right after I arrived there, uh, one of these luminaries, his name is David Smith. How many of you have ever heard of Dave Smith? Huh? More of you know Malta than Dave Smith. Um, so Dave gave a seminar on a new book that he had just published called Recognizable Patterns in Human Deformations. He had previously published a book called Recognizable Patterns in Human Malformations, which I had a copy of as an undergraduate and had read and absorbed. But he, this was a rather different approach. And, and first of all, when I met Dave, I, I thought, man, this, this guy is not very bright. Uh, he's big, freckle-faced, red-haired, reminded me of a Swedish farmer. Uh, I, I just, and he, and he was coming off of this real weird proposal that if you have a baby, a fetus that's developing, and it's malpositioned in the pelvis of the mother, it, its head becomes mal, uh, not malformed, but deformed. There's no genetic problem. There's no molecular problem with the fetus. It's perfectly normal. It's being pushed by outside forces. And I had just finished a PhD at the University of Pennsylvania focusing on molecular mechanisms of development. I said, no, this is not true because all development is, has a molecular foundation to it. And Dave said, if these are caused by outside forces, we should be able to correct them using outside forces. So he showed how you could take a molded little football helmet for this newborn baby and push the head very gently and correct this rather severe deformation. And I thought, wow, my mind has been changed. The data, which is the basis of science, gave the evidence that this was indeed the case. And while Dave was giving this talk, he referred to a very, very important book in biology, 
entitled On Growth and Form by, it was published in the 1930s, by Darcy Thompson. And since that time, I've told my students that the most important book in biology that you will ever read, and you should read it immediately if you haven't, is The Origin of the Species by Charles Darwin. And I challenge you to find a scientifically invalid concept in that book. It's elegant. Uh, from, a, from pure prose, it's elegant. And the second most important book in biology is a book called On Growth and Form by Darcy Thompson. Now, in this book, Darcy Thompson says, I am not degrading or, or denigrating uh, genetics. Uh, now, it had in molecular biology, the word hadn't, didn't exist by that time. But he said that we also need to look at physical forces on biological form. He said every leaf, every twig, every bone is, is sculpted by physical forces in addition to the genetic forces there. And to me, this became a very critical idea. Very few people have followed up on Darcy Thompson. In my opinion, in the 1930s, he was way ahead of his time, and I think he's still ahead of our time. Very few people have followed up, and I decided I would take these concepts that Darcy Thompson proposed, and I would apply them to developmental biology. So I have spent a lot of my career looking at non-genetic forces in development. Um, and, and so that's where this concept of bounded randomness comes in. It, it relates to the concept of chaos theory and how that determines shape. If you, if you think of chaos theory outside of Jurassic Park, which is, has a very poor explanation of it, but if you think of this sphere, if you think of a domain, uh, it's called a strange attractor. And if, if for a given phenomena, everything is going to happen within this sphere. And within the sphere, the whole, one of the concepts of chaos theory is that any single point in this sphere is as equally probable as any other point in the sphere. Therefore, there's this randomness concept. And um, a lot of evolutionary biologists have looked at this and talked about evolution as being entirely stochastic because it's driven by molecular mechanisms, it, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of mutation, and et cetera. And that's very true. So that fits inside this, this strange attractor domain. But because of the work of Darcy Thompson, and later some work published by Francois Jacob, um, who was a Nobel laureate, I thought, you know, it's, everybody's focusing on what's going on in the center, but why do we have a boundary here? What creates the boundary, and how does that relate to biological form? Uh, so just to give you a very simple example, uh, a chicken lays an egg. And everybody knows what the shape of an egg is. It's egg-shaped, right? But that's not the egg. That's just the coverings. The egg is what we refer to as the yolk. What shape is the yolk? It's a sphere. Why is it a sphere? Are there genes in the chicken for sphereness? Why would there be? 
If you make an oil drop the size of that yoke and suspend it in water, it's a sphere. Physics takes care of it so that you don't have to assign genes in a limited genome to making spherical eggs because the genes deal with that. Or the, excuse me, the physics deals with it. The genes don't have to. So that's what, uh, what I've been investigating for a number of years in, entitled uh, bounded randomness. You have stochastic events inside of a strange attractor, but yet you have a bounded to that strange attractor that limits the extent of what those variations can, can be. It's, it's scientifically testable. One can conduct experiments to, to, to test it. It is not intelligent design. In fact, it's almost the antithesis of intelligent design. Uh, one experiment that I did conduct looking at this issue is that if you start out with the concept of a sphere and you think of a salamander embryo as being basically a pipe draped over the sphere, it turns out that the legs, I mentioned to you, I'm interested in where arm, arms and legs form, the four legs occur at the ends of where the pipe ends at the spheres. And I thought, that's really interesting from a physics perspective. Can I tweak this system anyway? So what I found is that if I simply go in with a very young salamander embryo and cut a little slit to separate the body axis, which is the tube, away from the sphere, that the hind legs now no longer form where the yoke and body axis came together, but they now form where the new body axis and yoke attachment is. Uh, up to six whole vertebrae more cranial. So I can take a salamander that normally has 12 dorsal vertebrae and make a salamander with only six dorsal vertebrae by simply making a slit in the embryo, which then suggests that there are physical factors affecting shape in addition to genetic factors. So there is predictability in this random genetic melee, if you will. And so what's really interesting is looking at strange attractors and asking the question, what's the boundary rather than what's going on inside? All right, thanks. I know that um, Jeffrey Bradshaw wanted us to leave maybe 10 minutes at the end. I'm looking for him, and I don't see him. Um, is that still the case, or should we go? F I, I thought we would take another five minutes to answer some questions quickly. Would that, would that be the good thing to do? Okay, there, there's a set of questions that we've kind of been answering throughout the day, and this relates to uh, historical statements made by general authorities related to science and religion and evolution and so forth. And there are some good answers and some bad answers to this. I know a lot, there are quotes all over the place in this category, and I wonder if any of the panel wants to comment on this. I'll just briefly. Say, I'll just be really <laughs> brief and say um, that just because evolution challenged the testimony of someone in authority doesn't mean that it has to challenge your testimony. So a lot has been discovered since some of these statements have been made, and th there's just not that much question that evolution ex exists, continues to exist. Um, but that doesn't need to challenge your faith. And um, as other people challenge you with that, because I know there is social pressure, um, you can still you can still show by your actions 
um, your discipleship. And you can also um, ask them, how is it that evolution is changing your behavior? It, it shouldn't change your behavior and your belief and your um, respect and love for humankind and for following the commandments. It doesn't, it doesn't change your behavior and your faith and the actions of your faith. And just bear your own belief and relate, relationship with God and, and focus on that. And um, pe people are all wrong sometimes. And President Uchtdorf talked about that in the last general conference. And um, we, don't, we don't need to have our own... Um, testimony and belief in God challenged by new knowledge. We can just strengthen our own, um, our own relationship with God. Okay. Other comments on that subject. Are there other questions that you have in front of you that you need answered? Paul, you first, and then Trent has one briefly. This one's so related to this. Yeah. So, um, there's, there's one here that kind of relates this idea of in the scriptures, we have both statements that may be construed as being literal or those that are perhaps symbolic and uh, instructional. And so, um, and, and to follow up on, on what Emily said, again, if, if you run across some data that is inconsistent with your hypothesis, it does not change the fundamental truth underlying. It just your interpretation of how things works is wrong, and you need to rework that. But the experiential evidence that you have as an individual and the, the faith that you have, have continually tested and seen over the period of your life does not, is not negated by the fact that you interpreted how things work incorrectly. You just have to change that interpretation. And as a scientist, I throw out hypotheses of how things work on a regular basis and may even hold five competing hypotheses at one time of how things work and to try to figure out what it goes together. And when I run across data that doesn't is not supported by my own experience and by what others who I've seen both observationally, we can think about authority sorts of things, then you just say, okay, that hypothesis is wrong. So the question was, how do you view the temple creation story, purely symbolic or literal? And I just point out that um, throughout the history of man, there have been uh, stories put together uh, uh, to explain how the world was created. And that's one possibility. But in, in reality, if the true mechanism of how the world was created was given even to us today, let alone people 2,000 years ago, it's very likely to be totally unintelligible. And I'm really looking forward to sometimes seeing the movie that explains everything how it works. And I'll probably be so amazed that it's so unlike how we think it works that, uh, that it even worked at all in terms of our, of our theories and uh, how things work. And, uh, but when I went in that movie, I do want to sit between Darwin and Joseph F. Smith to see their reactions. <laughs> but uh, you so. better bring extra popcorn, Paul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With, with, that, with, with, with however much popcorn that I need, right, okay. So, um, so how, do I, how do I view that, those stories of, of the creation that we have? And, and my, my personal answer is to say I see them as eternal and moral instructions that are delivered 
to me and to others in the framework of our temporary and material world. And somewhere in between there, there's some, some, some elements that we can connect with that help us relate, but it's an eternal and a very moral instruction and, um, and, and meant to make me a, a better person. So um, um, that's, that's my answer. Okay. Trent or Steve? Well, <clears throat> if I can recover from Paul's joke, I start joking when I was laughing so hard. <clears throat> Maybe you better go for it. Well, I, I think I got it. Um, that's one of the things that amazes me about Scripture is their timelessness. Um, that the same set of instructions and words and insights can be given to an, a very ancient and, and from our modern perspective, primitive people that meant something deeply to them can, can thousands and thousands of years later be read for profit by somebody in our culture. So for me, this is the power of Scripture. This, the power of Scripture is that they're deep enough and timeless enough to transcend culture, to transcend the, the, the time, that, that they're written literally for every time, and, um, and we can find value and, and insight and inspiration a, a, a across these, these vastly different cultures is, to me, amazing. And for me, that's, that's part of the depth I find in it. <clears throat> no more jokes, Paul. <laughs> uh, this question was directed specifically to me. Can you elaborate on your suggestion that Adam's status as the first man is perhaps more a title than a chronological indicator? Um, and the fall of man associated with that. Um, so first of all, let me, let me say that I, I, I believe in the literal uh, Adam and Eve, a literal Garden of Eden, a literal tree of life, uh, a tree of, good, uh, of knowledge of good and evil, uh, that there was this specific event going on. Um, I view the uh, Garden of Eden as being a point of isolation. Uh, because it's in the, in the scriptures, it's talked about in reference to other places. So uh, Adam and Eve, I, I view them as being plucked out of the mainstream of humanity, if you will, and isolated in the Garden of Eden. Uh, I, and in fact, I constantly, throughout the 30 years I taught anatomy, challenged my students who came up to me and said, you know, find out that obviously evolution is a part of what I teach in anatomy, and that I'm also religious, and the first question out of, you know, how do you reconcile the two? And my first question back to them really kind of startled most of them. Uh, I said, <clears throat> were Adam and Eve inherently immortal in the Garden of Eden? And mo almost inevitably the students would say yes. Uh, and I would say, okay, $1,000 to you to give me the scripture that supports that. There is no scripture that supports that. Unless you canonize John Milton's Paradise Lost. And then, and then, and then you got an easy case there. Um, 
And then I asked the next question. If Adam and Eve were inherently immortal, why was there a, gar a tree of life in the Garden of Eden? What was the function of the tree of life? It made them immortal. Well, duh. If they're already immortal, why do you have to have a tree to make them immortal? And why was it such a big deal to put cherubim and a flaming sword? There's only one thing. Not even the Ark of the Covenant has been guarded by cherubim and a flaming sword in the entire history of the world. Only the tree of life. That was a pretty big deal. And we're told that it was guarded so that Adam would not go back and partake of the fruit and live forever in his sin. That tells us an enormous, that one sentence tells us an enormous amount. So let's then consider that Adam and Eve were mortal beings plucked out of the mainstream of humanity and that beautiful, beautiful cave art that you saw earlier with this person, person, who lived probably 12,000 years before Adam, had put his, his or her handprint outlined in this cave. You can't tell me that that's not a human. So there's a couple of possibilities. One, uh, John Lewis suggested that Adam was the first person with a spirit, and we, we've, we've talked about the idea that Agency doesn't have to do with a physical person, but it's more the spiritual person. That's a very interesting concept. But there's another concept. And, and, and John's reference to that suggested the 128th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, which I immediately turned to and read that section. It's very interesting. Because you have this comparison. You also see this in Corinthians. A comparison between Jesus Christ as the first fruits and Adam as the cause of the fall, since by Adam came man, or by, by uh, uh, man came the fall, by man uh, came also, I uh, uh, blew that scripture completely. Uh, so Adam created the fall and Christ then uh, atoned for the fall. We know that Christ's atonement is both proactive and retroactive. There's no question about that. But we, as Latter-day Saints, have a very unique perspective on the fall. One of the reasons we're not Christian is every, all the rest of the Christian world believes that the fall was an accident. An accident? With an omniscient God? That's kind of incompatible. We know that the fall was just as much a part of the plan as the atonement was, and that we all agreed to it in the pre-existence. Now, I don't claim to understand why all of the fall part was necessary. I don't understand that I don't understand it. I believe it. I don't understand it. But what if, and this is my speculation, what if Adam and Eve were put in the Garden of Eden for the purpose of partaking of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? We know that. And that the word first man is not a chronological statement, but a title of position. He was the representative for all of us in the fall. And that that representation was not just proactive for everyone born after Adam, but it was also retroactive for everyone born before Adam, who had also agreed to that same plan. Makes perfect sense from a scriptural perspective. I'm still tinkering with it. All right. Uh, thank you, Trent, for that expounding. Hopefully you can all see that 
that the biologists, not just on this panel, but those others who we represent, are are really thoughtful, humble individuals trying to understand our place in this earth, how we relate ourselves to our Father in heaven and so forth. And we'll end with this question, and I think we've answered it in some ways throughout the day. Do you know or do you believe that God is real? And it goes on with this same idea. And I hope all of us and all of you um, have taken the opportunity to build a relationship with your Heavenly Father. And through personal revelation and experiences that you have had, know certain things. And as Trent is still tinkering with some ideas, still wonder about many things and hope to come to a better knowledge as we move forward in the future. Thank you very much.